G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. My husband said to me, you know, what are you going to do with your career, Sarah? And I said to him, well, I know that I don't want to go back and work in the hospital system. And he said, you know what you need to do? You need to go and do your midwifery in a developing country. And I said, yes, that's always been my heart and my passion. The Story. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Mother Teresa was once quoted as saying, when you look at the masses and all their needs, you will feel overwhelmed. But if you look at one person in need, you will make a start. And that's exactly what happened to Sarah David after she made a trip to Papua New Guinea and learned about a woman who died shortly after giving birth because she didn't have access to quality health care. This inspired Sarah to make a start and get involved. We'll find out the exciting ways the Lord is using her to make a difference as she shares her story with us today. Sarah David is chatting with Eric Scadabo. Sarah David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. So glad to have you with us and you're joining us from Perth today. Sunny Perth. It's gorgeous. Very good. Gorgeous day. Glad to hear that and I just wanted to chat with you about that quote from Mother Teresa. That is so true about human nature that when we think about all the needs in the world, you can be overwhelmed. But when you think about one person and helping one person, that's what really kind of makes a difference. Is that the case for you? Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it just hits the mark. It's it's that, um, you know, your neighbor. So that that person that you can see, that person that's in front of you, that you can speak with, that you can actually, you know, influence, show care or mm-hmm. show kindness or walk alongside or whatever. I just think it is such a powerful image. And for me personally, it's helped me so much as uh, as I look at the needs around the world. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to find out about that one person that tugged your heart and inspired you to do what you're doing today. But first, we're going to go back and find out your story and what led up to you having your heart tugged. It all started mm-hmm. back in South Africa. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I grew up, well, I did some of my growing up in South Africa. And when I was about eight or nine, I remember I was riding my bike one day and um, I saw this little girl lying on the side of the road and she had obviously come off her bike and I went over to her to see what was wrong and if I could help her. And she'd got her toes caught in the, you know, it's the days before we had bike helmets and, Mm. um, you know, all the occupational health and safety around riding. So she was riding barefoot and she had got her toes caught in the wheel oh, and so she really yeah in, that's right in the spokes and so she had really messed up her feet mm. and she was sitting by the side of the road and she was crying and obviously there was blood and and everything mm. and um she also spoke a different language she spoke Afrikaans and I mm. was English mm-hmm. so 
I tried to just understand what was happening for her and where I could take her. And thankfully, um, her house was just a few houses down. So I managed to help her um, hobble along and I took her and I knocked on this door and her big burly father answered the door and um, sort of handed her over Mm -hmm. to him. And I remember just feeling a great sense of like, gee, I've really helped someone, Mm -hmm. you know, I stopped, I asked what she needed, and then I managed to get her to help. So, even though I didn't bind up her wounds, Mm. I remember just that that feeling of like, I've really made a difference for that little girl. And from then on, you know, we used to see each other and wave at each other on the bus or, you know, or whatever. And um, I thought, you know, Caring for other people is is really good. It makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. So from such a young age, you already kind of had that feeling of wanting to help. Yeah. And I also, you know, I then, then after that, I remember noticing that, you know, like if my dad had cut himself or, you know, needed a Band-Aid, I was always the one who wanted oh. to go to the first aid kit. See, and- I'm the one that goes the other way. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally drawn. <laughs> No, it was give me blood and guts or really? pus or yeah, give me the Bless tweezers. <laughs> Get the thorns out of, you know, oh, feet my goodness. or you whatever. You are much I, needed in the world. I used to just love that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, and of course, alluding to what you become, a nurse, you know, that's yeah. obviously a great quality to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but we want to go back to your childhood. What was childhood like? Was it a positive atmosphere? Mm. Well, yes and no. I mean, there there were, when I reflect on my childhood, it was, um, I mean, grew up, those early growing up days in South Africa was very conservative. Mm -hmm. It was at the peak of apartheid. An injustice, and you're against injustice. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I didn't know it then. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what injustice was. I didn't even know what apartheid was when I was a young girl growing up. But I remember that I just loved our, we had a maid and um, her name was Evelina. And Evelina was, um, she was warm. She was soft. Was you know, black? I used to, she was black. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, you know, she lived in a little sort of a, like a, a unit that was next to mm-hmm. our house on our property. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I used to love going into her room, which was not really allowed, but I used to sort of sneak in there and then I'd love to sit up on her bed and just see how she lived. And, you know, everything was always so neat and clean and there was this distinctive smell. And I I just loved the African people. Mm. I just loved them. But, I mean, we had a very privileged life because Mm -hmm. we were white so we had access to, you know, education and good health care and all of those things. But I could see that there were, you know, poor black people around. I'm just curious to know, how did you react personally when you learned about apartheid, which was systematic racism? Mm. What was your reaction? Well, the first time that I realized what it was, was when I was um, 10 and we just moved to Perth. Oh. And I came to school here, primary school, 
And I remember that in the classroom, there were some Indian people in our class. Now, we didn't have that in South Africa. It was all white. Mm -hmm. And I remember as well that some of the kids, when they found out I was from South Africa, they called me a racist. Oh. And I remember feeling very undignified and, well, I was indignant. That's rather the word. Mm -hmm. I was indignant and I just couldn't believe what they were saying about me and my country where I came from. And so I was shocked and I denied it actually hmm. because I didn't realise what an injustice it was that hadn't sort of entered into my thinking, um, my growing mind. And then when I went to high school here in Perth, there was a lot in the media about um, – you know, Desmond Tutu, mm -hmm. about um, Nelson Mandela and their fight for freedom. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being glued to this because in South Africa, we never even saw this on television. Oh. You know, we actually grew up in quite an oppressed society that they mm -hmm. only had television in 1975 oh. and it was state controlled. Mm -hmm. So, they controlled everything. They controlled everything in the media. Mm -hmm. And so, for the first time, we were seeing pictures of what was happening in South Africa that we had no idea were going on. Oh, how ironic that you grew up in South Africa and didn't even know the plight of black people in your home country. And it wasn't until That's you got right. to Australia that you learned about the injustice. That's right. Remember that reaction? I was a child. But remember, I oh, was right, a right. child. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I wasn't, uh, you know, yeah. um, wasn't on my radar. You know? yeah, you're not thinking about <laughs> politics and political no. systems when you're eight <laughs> years old. That's right. Most people anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. You know, so so there were these like emerging questions that mm -hmm. were formulating and this realisation that, oh, my goodness, you know, this apartheid, it's segregation and it's racist and mm -hmm. it's oppressive and I've been part of that and I'm a white person and I've benefited from that. But mm -hmm. the black Africans, they have, you know, there's been this incredible injustice against them. And then to make matters even more interesting, um, when I was 15, we then moved back to South Africa Oh, because we were only here temporarily with my dad's work. He was a uh, mining engineer uh, with the Argyle Diamond Mine up north in, of Western Australia. Mm -hmm. And at the end of our five-year tenure, um, my parents decided that, um, no, we wanted to go back to South Africa. And I went back kicking and screaming to finish the last two years of high school. And this was in the 80s, the late 80s. And of course, this was the time where the ANC was really rearing up. African National then, Congress, ANC. That's right. That right. And mm -hmm. that's right. And uh, their terrorist sort of arm really mm. took over. Mm. And so every day, there were disruptions and there were bombs that mm. went off and there was a lot of fear going on. And um, I was in a very, very uh, legalistic school and I just felt oppressed. I remember I just- You personally? This, yeah. I just wanted to break free because if you spoke out at the government, you could be imprisoned. Oh. You were not allowed to read certain books because- um, 
if you were seen to be anti the government, you could just be thrown into prison oh. um, and just left there, you know, with no charges. So that was wow. happening. So there was a yeah. lot of fear. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was also, um, we had a a young man, a young African man who was at our um, church and he was trying to study and uh, in the townships and the townships were the areas, the zones where the Africans were kept and they were not allowed out of those zones. Mm -hmm. You know, there were curfews on Mm -hmm. and he was really afraid this one time because there was necklacing happening in the townships and necklacing was where they um the other africans would get people that they felt were not on board with their terrorist oh, activities. oh so they view them as traitors view them as traitors mm-hmm. they would capture them put um car tires around their body so imprison them in car tires and then set the tires alight. Oh. And they called it wow. necklacing. Yeah, oh, it was wow. horrific. Yeah. And this was going on and this young man was really afraid. And so my father said to him, you come and stay at our house, mm. which was against the law. Oh. You could not have a black person stay in your house if they didn't have a pass. And, of course, there was a curfew going on as well. And I remember like really admiring my dad and my mum for doing this, to taking this black person into their home and it was against the law, you know. Mm-hmm. We had to be all hush-hush about it just so that he could be safe. So he stayed there for a couple of weeks. Yeah, so all of this was going on. Yeah. And, you know, so but it was really only because of my experience in Australia and being confronted deeply about this issue of apartheid, that this was not right, that when I went back to South Africa and then, you know, living amongst this turmoil and this sort of crisis, you know, was the beginning of the end of apartheid, really, in the late 80s. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Sarah David in Perth, who's sharing the events in her life that have shaped her into who she is today. We'll hear more of Sarah's story when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Sarah David in Perth, who's sharing the events in her life that have shaped her into who she is today. Before the break, we heard how she grew up in South Africa, but didn't really understand the injustice of the apartheid system until she moved to Australia and it was pointed out to her. Next, we'll hear about her spiritual background and about her life after her family moved back to South Africa. Well, my mum became a Christian when she was 30 and I was eight years old. So, mm-hmm. eight. When I was eight, mm-hmm. it seemed to be, you know, that real sort of like a crucible of um, things that happened for me. And life changed a lot. So, all of a sudden, mum gave up smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. 
and she was going to church every Sunday. And it was at that point, uh, you know, she told me what had happened and that she now was a follower of Jesus and that Jesus lived in her heart. And I said to her that I wanted that. Absolutely. I wanted Mm -hmm. Jesus to live in my heart. And so we said a little prayer and I felt Jesus move into my heart. And I sort of like it was this awakening, but it was something that I, like I had this inherent knowing Mm -hmm. because a lot of my really young childhood, there was a lot of fear. Um, I was terrified of the dark. I was terrified of burglars. Um, Or because of the crime in South Africa? Yeah, crime in South Africa, but also, you know, my parents were very strict. They weren't particularly, you know, we had everything that mm-hmm. we needed, but mm-hmm. they, they weren't demonstratively very loving and mm. and hugging and, you mm. know. Yeah. And so, you know, I just used to hate those night times because I used to feel so afraid. Mm. But now that I knew Jesus, you know, from the age of eight, I used to just call on Jesus. He was my friend, you know. Mm. He was my friend. So, a deep personal relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Intimately, just every day walking with him. Yeah. And then at 16 years old, you met your husband-to-be. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, after we returned to South Africa, um, I got in very involved in the Northfield Methodist Church, mm-hmm. um, just in the town where I was. Very involved in youth there. And I went to a confirmation class, so became confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we didn't do the full immersion baptism, but it was the confirmation. And at one of those leadership camps, I met Richard. So, he was five years older than me at the time. I mean, I we were just friends initially, mm-hmm. but very involved in youth and leading youth and going on camps. And I just absolutely loved it. I was in my element, part of a fantastic youth at the church. Mm -hmm. We were mentoring young people. And then after 18 months of being back in South Africa, my dad said, right, we're packing up and going back to Australia. Oh. And my- Never a dull moment. (laughs) Never a dull moment. My world really, really fell apart then. Uh, It was just before my um, final sort of year 12 Mm -hmm. exams. Uh, I'd met this guy, Richard, who Mm -hmm. I was madly in love with. And uh, and now my parents were going back to Australia. And I was devastated. So, um, it was a very, very difficult time. I spoke to my parents and they, they said that I could stay in South Africa, go to university, So, I went uh, for a year and Richard was finishing up his um, master's degree at the University of Advertisrant in Johannesburg and I started a year in human movement studies but was all over the place and sort of towards the end of that year, Richard was preparing to go to the army the next year because Mm -hmm. that was part of your conscription in South Africa. And I just really, I think it was probably the first time where I started to really hear God, you know, that that still small voice. Mm -hmm. And I could hear him saying, you need to go to Australia and be with your family. Um, very painful decision because I knew there was going to be many years of separation from Richard, but uh, that's what I did. So but that's kind of how you know if a relationship is going to last. 
Yeah, and at that time I didn't quite know that. You don't it was like it at the time. <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. tells you: Does absence make the heart grow fonder, or out of sight, out of mind? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you've been married how many years now? We've been married thirty years. So I guess it's, it, it's it's taken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so then, what happened next in your life? So um, coming to Australia, it was tough. So even though I had been here for five years, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, there's something around those later teen years, you know, and those friendships that you develop that it makes it, it – it's very hard to fit in again. And I just felt like a fish out of water. I just couldn't connect with those high school friends that, mm-hmm. that I had in junior high, but I wasn't really an adult yet. So it was a very difficult time for me. I wanted to study physiotherapy. My parents had said to me, don't ever be a nurse because my father had been But I like blood. (laughs) I know. And he, but he had been in hospital and he'd seen a a nurse having to clean up um, feces. And he said, you don't want to be a nurse. You don't want to be cleaning up after people. And so that had put me off. But God had other, other ideas. And, uh, at a tennis club, I spoke to this lady and she was a nurse and she just told me what a wonderful profession it was. Mm. And uh, so I registered to study nursing mm-hmm. here in Perth and that began my journey. And as soon as I started, I loved it. I just knew that I was in the right profession. Mm-hmm. Caring it sounds for like pe- you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cleaning up that mess. Loved it. Loved cleaning up the mess. <laughs> Okay. Bless you. Bless you. (laughs) Some people are called to these things. Others are not. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But specifically, not just general nursing, eventually you went into, let me see if I pronounce this right, midwifery? Midwifery, yes. I got it. Okay. I want to say midwifery, but that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Midwifery. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with being a woman, but it's about it's everything about being with a woman. So it means While being birth. with a woman. Yeah. So um, several years of working in uh, particularly emergency department. Mm-hmm. Um, more blood. I then more blood. <laughs> lots of death. Lots of trauma. Mm, yeah. um, and I I got to see it all. You know, the beginning of life and the mm. end of life. Yeah. But I just kept feeling that tug on my heart to do midwifery because when I'd started the nursing journey at university, I was doing it because I'd always wanted to do the midwifery part Mm -hmm. because I loved babies. But then I just got so caught up in the emergency nursing, I thought, oh, I'll just keep doing this. And one day I went to work and I saw a friend studying for her midwifery entry and God just reminded me, remember, you've got to do your midwifery. Mm -hmm. And I went home that day and I applied. And so I did my midwifery at King Edward Memorial Hospital here in Perth. Mm -hmm. So it was one year full time and it just was amazing. I, I just loved it looking after pregnant and birthing women. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't had any children of my own then, but at the end of that year, my husband and I decided to, so it was either, there were two choices, mm-hmm. either start a family or pack up and go traveling. 
And so we decided to pack up everything. Ah, be adventurous. We sold our house. We um, wow. sold up everything, gave away of, uh, you know, I remember we gave away our furniture to um, refugees and uh, got our backpacks and we went uh, traveling around the world, specifically to developing nations, uh, third world countries. Did you have and a goal in mind or just wanted to see the world? Just wanted to see the world mm -hmm. and see where it led. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my husband was a, uh, an engineer. And so, he'd been working already for 10 years and he was sort of, you know, tired, mm -hmm. not keen to start a family. And uh, so, we'd always said we were going to live life with imagination mm -hmm. and be adventurous. And, and there you um, go. <laughs> and there we went. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's part one of Eric Scadabo's conversation with Sarah David in Perth, sharing her life journey with us. And at this point in her story, she's a nurse and God has tugged her heart towards midwifery. But as we just heard... First, Sarah and her husband are going to go on an adventure. Next time, we'll hear the amazing ways God leads her and her husband on their overseas trip and how Sarah finally fulfills her desire to help women giving birth, but in a very unexpected location. That's all coming up next time. Meanwhile, you can learn about Sarah's midwifery ministry at her website. It's livingchildinc.org.au. Once again, that's livingchildinc.org.au. And we'll end today with these verses from the book of Psalms about childbirth. Children are a heritage and gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a divine reward. The children born when one is young are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. The birth of each child is special to God and why Sarah feels compelled to help those who do not have access to quality health care. We'll find out how God works this all out in Sarah's life next time. Until then, I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. It was a very long and difficult labour and needed a caesarean section. And I remember that first hold, you know, holding him and just looking at him and just going, oh my goodness, if I had been in a country without access to a life-saving caesarean section, I could have lost my life. My son could have died as well. One of the reasons why Sarah David is so passionate about helping women with difficult pregnancies is because she had struggles of her own. We'll hear more of her story and why she's striving to help women in remote areas have access to quality health care. That's all coming up next time. The story. the story. Just another way vision is helping you look to God daily. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.